Sharon's going to come up and read for us today's passage of scripture, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the sons of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering slumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Raisin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. My family and I have a tradition every Advent season. We go through this calendar, an Advent calendar that um, my wife and I had purchased when our oldest daughter was maybe around six or seven years old. So our children were very young. And it's this calendar that was created by Noel Piper from Desiring God Ministries, uh, John Piper's wife. It's this burlap calendar, and on it are all these little pieces that you Velcro on each day. You put it into the section where it create every day, and you, you, know, you, you move the character, or like if it's a, a camel or a wise man or whatever, and you move it up to that particular day. And so the tradition has always been that I would read it but what I found is that as, I, as we were going along each year, my kids could almost say it by memory. And they would start saying the word even before I actually read it. And it was, 
it became this tradition. We actually started doing it. So for, you know, now they're in their 20s. We still do it to this day. And it's something that we've done now almost two, over two, like a decade and a half. And it's always when Christmas time, the Advent season comes, there's always this desire for all of us to say, oh, we got to pull out the calendar. We have to do it. See, the thing about Advent and this season is that it's a season of a lot of signs and symbols. And just look at what we have here. We have poinsettias, there's candles, there's trees, wreaths. We don't do this just because we want to have a, quote, festive spirit or because this is the thing to do when it's Christmas time. No, we do this because the signs and symbols point us to a reality. And in the same way that we have this tradition and while it's fun and my kids enjoy it, but we always go through the point of this is about Jesus. And the reality for all of us, for my family, for myself, is that I forget Jesus. Not just in Christmas season, but in all times of my life and in every day of the week and even throughout the day. And so all the symbols and signs are meant to point us back to a reality of, oh yeah, Christ is real. He has come. He has come to protect us and to save us. Well, in the same way, there's a king. His name is Ahaz, according to this story in Isaiah 7. And he also has been given a sign. And this sign is meant to point him to a reality. And only when Ahaz and when we understand this to be true, do we truly begin to understand this mercy and grace that our God has for us. So what I'd like to do is look at this passage through two points. First is we'll look at the fear that Ahaz is struck with in verses 1 through 9. And then secondly, God's response to that fear in grace in verses 10 through 17. So fear and grace. First, regarding the fear, there's a lot that's happening in verses 1 through 3. Sharon did a great job of reading that, by the way. And it's a, it's a bunch of names and might seem a little difficult to understand. But I hope you'll see the fruitfulness of understand the, understanding the historical context of this passage. This is a really ominous time for Israel, especially for Ahaz, who was King Uzziah's son. So you might not know who that is. Uzziah had reigned as king for decades long, four to five decades. And during that time, Judah had gone through a real time of peace and prosperity. So everything had gone well. Now we are used to presidents who are, their terms are perhaps one or two terms, eight years max. And whenever a president is president for eight years and there's a new president, you always wonder what's going to happen. Well, imagine not a president for eight years, but 40 years, 50 years, and a time of prosperity, and suddenly there's turmoil. That's exactly what Ahaz was facing here. It was previously a prosperous time, and now it's a time of uncertainty. And so little is known about this king, Ahaz. How would he rule? There are so many unknowns. Ahaz's ascension to the throne also coincided with Assyria's rising power in the region and dominance. And so Assyria was this grand superpower 
And within this small area of Palestine, there's numerous different small players. You have Judah, which is all the kings of David and descendants reigned in that area. Two tribes of Israel. Then the north of that is Samaria or Israel, and that's 10 tribes. And they had turned away from the Lord. And then above north of Samaria is a, is a nation called Syria. And so when Assyria had ascended, there were also other world powers that were sort of descending, Egypt. Um, there was a smaller power that was slowly rising, Babylon, but still not a player in this time period. And so a number of different nations, as nations do, start forming alliances. And one alliance that is formed is with Syria, Israel, or Samaria. And what they're doing is they're putting pressure on Judah and on Ahaz to align with them against Assyria. So you can see all the geopolitical machinations that are happening. And I think you can understand that even in our context, in our world, that's happening all the time with China and Russia and the United States and all big players and all smaller countries aligning and forming alliances. This is sort of the backdrop of what we see in verses one through three. And because Ahaz, who is leading Judah, decides not to align with Syria and Samaria, those two nations form an alliance together to attack Judah and King Ahaz. And so what we have here is the, the result of these two nations coming and now sending armies to encamp outside of Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. And according to verse 2, this is what we hear. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What did they experience? They're so afraid. I mean, there's reason to be afraid. We, we've can appreciate fear to some extent. And if you look at what Ahaz does in response to this fear, we see it in verse three. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now that place, the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, that's the end of, it's sort of the storage area for water for Jerusalem. If you are a king and you are in a fortress, walled off city, and there's about to be a siege on this city, what's the one thing you need? Well, there's a number of things you need, but the most critical thing you need is water. I mean, people can last a long time without food. They cannot last long without water. So this was actually the water tank area, you might say, where the king needed to make sure that it was... Um, really fortified against any type of siege so that they would have access to water. And so as he's looking at this, and you have to understand, Jerusalem is on a mountaintop, and there's a valley over that's underneath. And in this valley is the encampments of all these armies that are trying to overthrow Ahaz and Judah and attack. And there's this utter fear as he's looking out, trying to figure out how do I fortify all this? How do I keep the siege at bay? And at the same time, 
help my own throne to survive against these enemies that were about to attack. So notice one important missing detail about Ahaz's response. There is not a single instance in this passage where Ahaz asks God for help. He doesn't cry out to him. He doesn't turn to him. He doesn't say, Lord, I need you. I'm desperate. There's no, this is a hopeless situation. Instead, he does everything he can to try to figure out for himself, how does he get himself out of the situation? He uses military strategy. He uses city planning. He does everything he can except to call out to the Lord himself. Because here's the nature of fear. Fear drives you inward. It makes you focus on your own power and your own strength. It's our absolute instinct to do so. When we have trouble and times of trial, almost always our first instinct is actually not to call out to God. It's to think, what can I do about this? Who do I need to reach out to? Who do I need to talk to? You know, how do I strategize and plan to get myself out of this situation? We also become very inward towards ourselves. We protect ourselves. We protect our family. We don't necessarily think about how do I care for others? How do I share with others? How do I extend kindness to others in this circumstance? I remember about a week before uh, the first lockdown of COVID, and I happened to be at Costco, and it was such a tumultuous time in Costco. But what was interesting is there were two types of people. There was the oh, this, nothing's going to happen, people, and there's, the world is going to come to an end tomorrow, people. And you had these two extremes, and I remember listening to a conversation that the cashier was having with somebody, and this person said, why is everyone buying so much toilet paper? And uh, they said, don't you know, and the cashier said with sort of this sarcasm, don't you know the world's going to end tomorrow? And that's really, literally what he said. But who knew? Not the world was going to end, but we were going to run out of toilet paper. So there were some who said no toilet paper and some who had like 10 bags in them. And that's what fear does. Fear drives you to take care of yourself, to guard yourself. Hoarding is a result of fear. And fear drives you to make sure that you are okay. See, there's, that's our instinct when it comes to fear. It's that we become inward focused. And it actually leads us towards unbelief because faith is not that we never experience fear, but that ultimately we trust in God regardless of the circumstances. And so fear attacks faith. There's the old saying, everyone is a tough guy until you get punched in the mouth. So everyone's always able to say, oh, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid until that punch comes and then you realize, oh, I am afraid. I am afraid. And in the end, that is the essential conflict that we face in faith. Our faith is undergoing regular points of conflict when we are afraid, when we are fearful, especially when we obviously do not know what the end result will be, which is why we're afraid. Will God be trustworthy when the situation is bearing down on us grieving and sorrows and hurts and traumas. At the end of the day, it's the question of whether I will truly believe Jesus. Did he really give himself for me? Did he really love me, as Galatians 2.20 says? Author Anne Voskamp, in her book, 1,000 Gifts, 
talks about how she wrestled with death after a two-year-old sister was crushed by a truck. And she said, she came to the realization that it ultimately is about trusting in God's character. She writes, God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given the incomprehensible. Jesus has given what we can never give to anyone else. He's given the incomprehensible. He's already proven himself to be trustworthy. It's not that he will do this. He has already done this. And the question is not, will he do this for me? It's, do I believe it? Do I know it to be true? And that really exhibits itself most in times of fear, times where we're anxious and afraid. And those two moments when we're anxious and afraid, that's really the pivotal point of Do I trust God or not? Is he faithful or not? And the faithfulness is based on a historical reality. So all these signs that we see, you know, what we do and set up on Christmas, what you do in your traditions for your family, I hope you do that because you need to be reminded of truth, of a historical fact. This is not wishful thinking, but it's the fact that Christ came to this world and gave his life for sinners such as you and I. And when we understand that to be true, then the symbols and signs mean much to us. They're treasures to us. John says in 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, the love of Christ, the love of the Father, shown at the cross, it casts out fear. Not just the love of the cross, but the love of the incarnation of God becoming flesh, which Um, many theologians believe is a greater miracle than Jesus rising from the dead. If you could really imagine that, which we can't, it's hard to imagine. And so when we come to this idea that the more we preach this gospel to ourselves, that Christ came and he died and he rose again on my behalf, the more fear is driven away from us. The more our hearts have contentment and peace no matter the circumstance. I love the way how Counselor Ed Welch describes this. He says, the custom in God's house amongst his people is that you keep talking with him and listening to him until what he says sounds good and true. It's why we meet together. It's why we have men's pancake breakfast and women's savory, savory whatever's. <laughs> We don't gather together for the pancakes and for the savory goods. We gather together because I need reminders. I need brothers and sisters in my life who tell me, hey, don't forget Jesus. Don't forget. Because if I don't have that, and if I don't have his word through so many of you to show me and say, the Lord is with you. You know, he's, he's there. He's by your side. I forget. And when I forget, I'm afraid. I become anxious, I become overwrought. And when I'm afraid and anxious, I become angry and frustrated. And I have little contentment. And I'm walking my life always in a point of subtle darkness without even realizing it. 
this is why this season prior, like these past two years with COVID has been so deadly for people. Not because of a virus, but because of our forgetfulness of God's kindness and his grace that is so often seen through you and me, through our togetherness, through our gathering. And so I love it how Ed Welch describes it because we have to be constantly talking to him. We have to say it until we know it to be true. Because it is true, we just have a hard time believing it because we're regularly inundated with all this talk and news and information that says it's not true. So now it's, no, it is true. So how does God respond to Ahaz's complete neglect of God? God always does this in the Bible. He always acts in mercy. Look at verse 3 again. God, what he does is he says, Isaiah, I want you to take along your son, Shir Jashub. That might seem odd, because why would God tell a prophet, you need to bring your son with you? His son, notice, he doesn't say anything there. You know what he does? He just comes. But there's a reason why his name is mentioned, because in Hebrew, Shir Jashub means a remnant will return. His son, by his name, is meant to show that God is saving his people. He's protecting his people. When all else seems so dark and bliss, and when it seems as though the enemy has completely won, God says, don't worry, a remnant will return. I will protect my people. There are 7,000 who do not bow down to Baal. People will worship me. Even when the worst trials come, there will be a group of people who will say, I still trust in the Lord. And so when God tells Isaiah, bring your son to Ahaz, he's telling Ahaz the same thing. Ahaz, I know it looks bad, but I promise you I will protect my people. I will be there. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. So how does Ahaz respond? Does he say, thank you, God. I praise you. I worship you. Absolutely not. He doesn't respond that way at all. But God is still gracious. Despite Ahaz's unbelief, God shows himself to be faithful to his promises. This is God's word. This is the nature of God. God is gracious. He will always keep his promises despite our inability to keep our own promises and commitments to him. And that is mercy. So Ahaz, despite God's promise, is still literally quaking with fear. Some of you have done public speaking before. I remember my first time ever speaking in public, um, and I could literally hear my knees hitting each other. I'm not even, that's not an exaggeration. It actually happened. I could hear them. And, you know, it's a, if you, you know, one of the things they say is when you're, public speaking, you never hold a piece of paper in your hand while speaking. You know why? Because this happens. You literally are quite, but internally, I mean, you might in your mind think, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. But when you're saying, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, and you're reading and it's like this, or your voice is cracking and you're not intentionally doing that. But when your heart is afraid, there's a physical reaction to it. And you can't even stop yourself. I remember, I've shared this before, I remember being in a courtroom where uh, the, descendant, uh, the defendant was 
you know, he was um, given the verdict of guilty and he was remanded to prison. And he was standing there in the yellow, uh, the orange jumpsuit. And literally you could see just that his lower half just became wet all of a sudden. And he started shaking uncontrollably. Uh, that was quite a sight, you know, to see someone so overwrought with fear that he couldn't control his bowels and he was shaking beyond like this, the way that it's being described. <laughs> One thing you do is they always say when you go to an interview or something, don't wear a dark shirt because, you know, there's <laughs> your sweat builds up right here. And no matter how much you say, I'm not afraid, I'm not nervous, but you get these stains all over and you sweat on your brow because you cannot control fear. Fear is all-powerful, it's seemingly, and it's all-consuming. And no matter how much you say you're not afraid, you are afraid. And listen to God, what he says to Isaiah to tell Ahaz in verse 4. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. You know, those smoldering stumps of firebrands, if you've ever gone camping before, and uh, at the end of the time you're about to leave, there's the fire. You know, there's maybe hot coal still around. You take your water, leftover water, and you pour it in, and then it becomes all doused with water. But you'll see little, little smoke rising, you know, maybe a few, just because all that water has soaked everything, and it's, not, it's, so, it's powerless. It's harmless. not going to do anything. Well, that's what God is saying here is Syria and Samaria, they are two smoldering firebrands. They're powerless, harmless. When I'm in control, they can't do anything to you, Ahaz. Israel, I'm protecting you. I'm your power. I'm your strength. It's not going to be your armies. It's not going to be your houses. It's not going to be your cars. It's not going to be the amount of money you stockpile in your bank accounts. I'm your protector. Don't forget that. Because the moment you think that it's all about you, you will experience fear and anxiety. So if you experience fear and anxiety and it's controlling you and dictating how you live, know that it's because of unbelief. I don't believe God. I don't believe he is true to his promises. I don't believe his word. No matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you say because you can't hide it. It's, it flows out of you. But the person who actually believes and trusts God, I mean, it's not that they never are tempted in fear or anxiety. But when it comes, they fight it with God's word. And they long for other people to come and speak into their life and say, do not be afraid. Or when they come on Sundays and they hear just the word of God read, it's, it's truly a salve to your soul. And it allows you to not be afraid. When we know that God is greater than any circumstance, any trial, any enemy, Satan himself, death itself, fear is driven away. You know, with God being so great, we know that cancer is small. It's really small. Bullies are small. Dictators are small. Torturers. Trauma is smaller. The Omicron variant is small. The Omega variant is small. And I was talking to somebody, what do we do after Omega? You know, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Well, how many millions of variants, it's still small relative to our God. 
the believer of Christ always knows that peace is what drives us because of our trust in a great and wondrous God. I love Proverbs 3, 25 through 26, which gives us this promise. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence. He will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The oft-repeated phrase in Proverbs is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we have a great fear of God, a reverent awe of God, a wondrous fear, a wonderful fear of God, all other fears are swallowed up by that fear. And we can have peace, even though the situation might call for fear. And so it can be, again, as simple as, hey, I'm taking a speech class and I need to go and give a speech, or you need to give a, give a speech at work. Public speaking is often number of our, one of our number one fears, or fear of heights, which I have a lot of. And so sometimes I have to preach the gospel to myself even when I'm standing on a really high platform or something. Or, but there's a lot greater fears, the fear of a diagnosis, the fear of death, someone who's died in your family, the fear of a demon, the fear of a variant where everyone is jumping out, running to get their, you know, this or that and make, stockpile this and make sure we hoard up on this. This is uh, sad to say, but a true reality of our hearts of where we're at. Well, God gives us a different picture so first, God gives a sign. I'm going to give a sign of a son. The son's name is Shir Jashub. It means God is going to provide a remnant. He's going to be protect. And then Ahaz doesn't believe. And so you know what? God says, all right, well, I'm going to give you a bigger sign then. And so we see this sign in verses 10 through 17. Truly, this is an act of grace, right? Because Ahaz has, Ahaz has done nothing to deserve more signs. But look at verses 10 and 11. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Now, God doesn't have to do that. Ahaz has done nothing to deserve God's constant reminders that he's with them. But God says, I'm still going to give you another sign. And it's going to be an even greater sign than Isaiah's son. Look at Ahaz's answer when God says, I'm going to give you this sign. In verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And that might seem like a good, religious, faithful answer. This person doesn't want to test God. But what he's missing is that God is the one who's offering this. In most other instances in the Bible, whenever someone asks for a sign, it's usually out of their unbelief. Or this sense that, I don't believe you, God, so in order for me to believe you, you need to give me a sign. This is not what's happening here. Instead, it's Ahaz, I want to show you that I'm going to keep my word, and my word is always true. And yet, Ahaz refuses to receive it based on essentially an external religion. Ahaz is religiously pragmatic. He is unwilling to experience God's power because of that pragmatism. And the Pharisees, for example, they were religiously pragmatic because when they saw Jesus healing this man uh, and on the Sabbath day, 
what was their critique of Jesus? It was, you're not allowed to do that. The law says you cannot heal on the Sabbath or you cannot do any work on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response was, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I created the Sabbath. I created the law. And you're, first of all, missing the point of the law. Secondly, is that you're missing the person who gave the law. Do you see what I mean? Is that there's a religious pragmatism. And it's the idea that as long as you do the act of religion and not actually understand the relationship of the religion, that's all you need. And that's what Ahaz was doing. He was so busy trying to say to the Lord, I'm not going to test you, that he couldn't see that God was saying, I want to bless you. And that is perhaps our most greatest stumbling block to having a relationship with Christ. We're so caught up with the acts of religion that we don't understand the relationship of what God wants from us, which is he wants our heart. He doesn't care for simply your acts. I love the way John Piper describes this. I mean, it would be like uh, my wife and I would go out on a date. I say, honey, I want you to get dressed. We're going to take you out on a really great we're going to have a great dinner. And as I prepare, I, I set up these flowers. I give it to her. I do all this. I get to the dinner, and it's so romantic. And there's a violinist playing, and I hired the violinist to come and play for us. And then at the end of the evening, she says, thank you, Sam, so much. You just showed me how much you love me. And I said, it's, it's my duty as a husband. I have to do this. I mean, it's just it's a requirement. It's the law. The law of husbandry is to do this. What do you think her response would be? Her response would be anger, righteous anger, right? Why is it then that we think that's what God wants of us? Does God simply want our acts, our acts of religion? Going to church, reading the Bible, praying, taking communion, serving, setting up these flowers, cleaning the floor, all of these things in and of themselves are religious acts, but they do not in any way get us nearer to the heart of God any more than I would have in that instance. I would have no idea what my wife's heart was like. And so it is possible that some of you are in this room and yet you do not know Christ, but you say, I'm a Christian. You know, I often think that the best way to describe a Christian is to ask the question, are you born again? The very idea that Jesus gave where to Nicodemus and Nicodemus is saying, you are a new creation. You look at the world differently. You look at everything differently through different eyes. There's a humility about you, a brokenness and a longing for Christ. That is what a Christian is. The problem is that when I ask, are you a Christian? The idea of it is, do I go to church? And that's not what a Christian is, at least not someone who is born again. And this is exactly where Ahaz was at. Ahaz believed he was a Christian, but he was not born again. He didn't have a relationship with Christ. And so the Pharisees, just like Ahaz, he misses the point. And this is where the grace of this season comes into play. Verses 13 to 14. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name 
Emmanuel. Ahaz, he failed miserably. And yet God still decides, I'm going to give you a greater sign. Before, I gave you Isaiah's son as a sign. And his name, Shir Jeshu, meant the remnant will return. Well, that's, you don't get that. So I'm going to give you an eternally greater sign, one that's going to impact not just you and Israel, but nations, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 2. Many will receive the benefits of this sign. It, he too will be a son. But this son is going to supersede any miracle I've ever done because, one, He's going to be born outside of regular, normative, scientific, biological means. A virgin shall bear a child. This son, just like Shir Jashub, will also have another name. But that name is going to be even greater than I'm going to have a remnant. It's God is with you. God is forever with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what Emmanuel is. It's the Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 name. It's, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are my people always. We sang a song earlier, your name, you're a strong tower, you're a protector. That's an Emmanuel sign. That's an Emmanuel phrase. John 6, 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Bible, the New Testament is full of this theme. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. I'm with you. I'm with you always, 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 always. No matter what you go through, I'm never going to leave you. Um, Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Jesus is going to make sure till the day of Christ that he was not going to leave you. And then when he ascended to heaven, Matthew 28.20, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I could have come up with about a hundred different verses that show us this truth, that Jesus will always be Emmanuel from the beginning to the end. He will never leave you nor forsake you. When we think about this time, we think about signs. Signs are a wonderful picture of God's faithfulness to us. Signs show us that he's not going to leave you. He's by your side. There's no virus that can come, no death that will come, or suffering, chronic pain, depressions, and sorrows. Nothing will come to you that you say, God, are you really there? You know why? Because the greatest sign was given, ultimately. Christ, who was born as an Emmanuel God, and the way that it's like just completely stamped to make sure we never forget is what Jesus called the sign of Jonah. Listen to verse, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know what's important here in this passage? Is Jesus doesn't say, I'm not going to give you a sign to the Pharisees. He says, You're not going to get any other sign because you know what they wanted? They wanted, they came to him and said, prove to us that you're the Messiah. We're going to ask you to do this and we want you to do it. And if you can do that, then you really are God. And how many of us think that way about Jesus? We think that way about Jesus because we do not understand or appreciate 
the idea of what Christ has already done for us, as uh, Ann Voskamp described, that Jesus has already proven himself trustworthy. If you're at a place where you say, Jesus, I need you to show me a sign or answer this prayer this way, because if you don't, then you're not really trustworthy or you're not true, then you don't understand at all the cross of Christ. And then it doesn't make sense to you at all. So what Jesus is saying, he's not saying, I'm not going to give you a sign according to this passage. He's saying, I'm going to give you a sign, but there's only one sign you're going to get. And it's the most important sign of all. It's that the sign of Jonah, three days, three nights, referring to Christ on the cross, bearing the crushing weight of our sins, all of our guilt, all of our shame, so that we can be eternally resurrected with him in glory with the Father forever, so that all fear is gone, all anxiety broken, everything cast away so that we can be fully experiencing God's grace, kindness, peace, mercy, joy, forever and ever and ever. For those of us who say, Jesus, are you going to prove yourself to be true? Then you're missing it. You're asking exactly what the Pharisees are asking and what Ahaz is asking. I need you to do exactly what I want or else you're not true. And Jesus is saying, I've proven myself to be true. Until you get to that place, you'll never understand me. Where are you at? Which one are you? Every week, we have a sign. This bread and this wine, we celebrate Advent every week. I don't know if you realize that. So we don't need Christmas wine as a symbol of Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. Why he came to this world, the coming of Christ, is to save us from our lowest of depths, to rid us of fear, to protect us, and to show us that he's always with us. You will never be alone. Even if you are physically, you're never alone. And every time you forget, we come together to remind ourselves of that. I hope you do that today. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this table remembering your kindness and your mercy, that you are faithful to your word. You are our shield, our great reward, our strong tower, our fortress, our deliverer, our rock. You are our hiding place. You are the one who keeps us safe. And you do that despite where we are because you always act in grace. Forgive us because each one of us here, we have been afraid, we have been anxious, we have tried to solve situations for ourselves. We will do that this week as well as we have done it last week. We, by our own merit, have no right to come to this table. But because of Jesus, your shed blood, your broken body for us, we can come. And we can come knowing in truth that the historical fact of the resurrection and the historical fact of the incarnation gives us the right and the privilege to be called son and daughter. And that's why we come with joy. Forgive us for the many times we have sought other solutions like Ahaz. We have quaked with fear. But you have told us time and time again, do not fear, for I'm with you. And this act today reminds us as a sign of that reality. In Jesus' name we pray.